0: This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement
1: in the pages of a good book.
0: Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read.
1: Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Books and Nachos Rambo series where we've been looking back at all of the Rambo novels by David Morrell. We've been doing this because our sister podcast now playing has been reviewing the Rambo films and I thought it would be interesting to go back and see where Rambo originally started 10 years before Sylvester Stallone played him on screen and then when I found out David Morrell wrote the sequel novels based on scripts that he had no input in I was just too intrigued to pass up the chance to read those books as well and review them here. But as this week, Now Playing is reviewing the latest Rambo movie, which there is no novelization of, we just decided we're going to have to bring you an interview with the author himself, David Morrell. So he's joining us now. Hello, sir. Hey, how are you? Good. I really want to thank you for joining us and giving our listeners some insight into both your writing of the books, as well as some of the making of the movies.
0: I'm always happy to talk about Rambo, so...
1: And I want to tell our listeners right off that you wrote a great new introduction to First Blood in 2000. And you also did a commentary track for the First Blood movie. So I'm kind of considering that prerequisite materials for this interview. <laughs> yeah. So people can go and find all of that material readily available. Excellent.
0: And uh, might, I don't know, we might have time to talk about it later. But First Blood is now, of course, we know that the movie, and the, it's an odd thing, the movie First Blood, uh, which some people erroneously call Rambo. The movie First Blood and the novel First Blood share many plot similarities and yet are in interesting ways sort of on parallel train tracks. And anybody who's a fan of the film but hasn't read the book, it's different. In particular, you get a lot more characterization, particularly of the police chief. And recently, in a project with Amazon Kindle, in which I have a number of my books now available as an ebook. I wanted very definitely to have First Blood finally available as an ebook. Uh, Kindle exclusive. With uh, It just thrills the heck out of me that people can obtain that book anywhere around the world in 60 seconds. It's just amazing where the planet is going.
1: And, you know, when I started reading these books, I actually checked for Kindle first because of that availability, and I ended up ordering the paperbacks, and then I noticed it became available for the Kindle in just the past few weeks, so...
0: Yes, I believe it was September... Uh I had a number of books that I owned the e-book rights to, and we've been just sort of, you know, wondering what to do with them. And Amazon came to us in January and said, would you like to be in business with us and do an exclusive arrangement? We'll do nine of your backlist titles, including First Blood. And then I said, well, let's sweeten the pot. And I have a new novel I just finished called The Naked Edge, which is a sequel to a a well-liked novel of mine called The Protector. And I said, why don't I make The Naked Edge available? And this will be the first time an established author has made available a never-before-published book only in an e-book format. My arrangement with Amazon is for a year, And thereafter, I can make a a print arrangement, but I wanted to, you know, just to draw attention to everything, do this highly unusual dramatic step of making The Naked Edge available as an e-book only so that I could, in a way, draw attention to First Blood as an e-book.
1: And actually, I picked up the Kindle version because of the great text searching ability. Is that a new cover for First Blood as well?
0: Yes, it is. What happens for authors, when you have a print publisher, that print publisher owns the covers. And one of the things that I really got excited about, because uh, I like the cover on the paperback of First Blood, I've not always been crazy about some of my covers. Uh, Back in the the 90s, one publisher just slapped a black cover with a red title on it and called it a cover, and I thought, "That, that doesn't work. And they said, well, we don't have any more time. And you know when a publisher is dealing with like 90 books per month obviously things don't get done as well as they might and so I got very excited uh Amazon put me in touch with a person they like whose name is Asha Hossein and she lives up in the Seattle region near where Amazon is and I got to tell you we've just gotten along so well and she designed Uh, You know, with discussions from me, she designed all the covers, the nine backlist titles we had to have all new covers for, as well as the new cover for The Naked Edge. And yes, that's a new cover for First Blood.
1: I really like the new cover because it totally differentiates itself from the movies. You know, the paperback I had had The Knife, which is so iconic from the movies, but this new cover lets people know they're getting into something different. I think that a lot of people didn't realize, because of how big the movies were, that this was a novel for a decade before it was a movie.
0: The novel was published in 1972, uh, which seems like an eternity ago, a lifetime ago in a way. That's 38 years. Now, in the book world, these days, books go out of print in a year and a half and for that book to have been alive and in print all these years for 38 years to me, I mean I'm just in awe of, of what has happened it's it's very exciting i had started the book when i was a student at penn state and we have to go back a little and understand what this country was like during the vietnam war and uh, the arresting image that i usually draw attention to is that in 1970, at Kent State in Ohio, students protested the war in front of National Guardsmen, and those National Guardsmen opened fire with live ammunition and killed several of the students. And at that time, many of us feared that the country had split so far apart a pro-war, anti-war, uh, different political factions, etc., etc., that we were going to have a civil war. Uh, I mean, we'd already had a police riot in Chicago uh, with the Democratic Convention in 1967, and things went on from there. Uh, it might have been 1968. I'd have to remo- re- review the date. You have to remember that in 1968 alone, there were not one riot or two riots or three riots. There were several hundred riots in american cities one of which was within blocks of the white house and it was against that feeling of oh my god where the hell are we going that i wrote the novel and didn't take sides the novel alternates between rambo and the police officer teasel and it has a kind of a b a b structure rambo teasel rambo teasel and it goes through the whole book like that and when you're in rambo's point of view you're saying I get it, yeah, yeah, damn it, I'm mad. And then when you get into Teasel's point of view, you say, well, wait a minute, why is this guy acting like that? And so you go back and forth understanding both of them, but in the end, as you watch this tragedy unfold, you realize that you don't really understand either of them.
1: Now, you mentioned in the intro for First Blood that Philip Klass had taught you and said he could teach you how to write but not what to write about. Yeah. And... As you described here and as you did in the intro, you talk about your ideas for First Blood, but when I was reading First Blood, I was personally impressed at the level of writing skill exhibited for the reason you just mentioned. It's so ambitious for any novelist, let alone a first-time novelist, to take such a story with moral ambiguity and so balanced that you you tear it apart a hundred different ways and both characters could be seen as the hero or both characters could be seen as the villain, despite or because of all their actions
0: you hit upon the reason I think the book works at the time in 1972 the book was reviewed everywhere which is very unusual for a first novel Uh, the New York Times a lot of places that aren't in existence anymore the Saturday Review and things like that but it got just a ton of reviews and what's interesting now to look back at them is to see the confusion of the reviewers in terms of who the focal character is. Is is Rambo a hero? Is he a villain? Is Teasel a hero? Is he a villain? And in fact, uh, several uh, reviewers even came down on the side of the police officer, perhaps betraying a political bias and perhaps just, you know, wanting some order at a time when the world seemed to be going crazy. When Warner Brothers owned the rights. The the film thing was kind of complicated. First the rights were sold to Columbia Pictures as the novel was being published where Richard Brooks, a director I just love, and a writer, screenwriter, Richard Brooks was gonna write and direct. Something went wrong and the Columbia sold the project to Warner Brothers, where Martin Ritt was scheduled to direct with Paul Newman in it. Now, none of this went very far, but this was, you know, things that you'd see in the trade papers at the time. And what was interesting was that Newman was going to play the police officer and that Rambo was reduced to a, a, a lesser character, almost the way the police officer in the existing movie becomes a lesser character. And I thought that was Very interesting that the confusion would be such that even the studio would wonder what side to come down on.
1: Yeah, that is interesting, because obviously it went the other way in the end. I was wondering, when you were writing this, why did you pick the title First Blood? In the movie, they have that line that makes it abundantly clear, but the book doesn't. And in fact, in in the book, I think it's Rambo who draws First Blood.
0: (laughs) It is, and the, the, the title is never explained. It's an old dueling term. The person, he who draws first blood shall be the victor. And so if you like, it's about combat. It's about winners in combat and things of that nature. We had gone through a number of different titles, the publisher, and my agent, and I, trying to figure out what would be appropriate. And nothing had really stuck. And we were down to, in fact, the day when the book was going to go to press. And we still didn't have a title. And I remember having a conference call with various people in the publishing world, we were kicking things around, we were thinking about dueling, and all of a sudden, I can't remember who it was thought of it, all of a sudden the title First Blood came to us because of that dueling connection.
1: Now, I know that when I read a book that later becomes a movie, it's always intriguing for me to see how the characters I've envisioned in my head are translated onto screen. Yes. With you as the writer of this and having created these characters, What did you think about the casting and when you saw the portrayal of Dennehy and Stallone?
0: Well, I think Sylvester Stallone is a gifted film actor. And my credential for that, so to speak, is a conversation that I had with Richard Crenna. And Richard Crenna, let's add parenthetically, was a wonderful human being. Uh, He had been in the business forever from when he was like a toddler. And he'd been in radio and he'd been around. He was never a major star in the sense that Stallone is a star, but he he had you know a wealth of experience and it had not affected him he was a truly kind interesting unegotistic person and it was just a joy to talk with him and so one afternoon um uh, i think it was during the filming of rambo 3 uh, I had gone to this set because I was working for Playboy at the time to do a piece about the filming of Rambo Three. And uh, he and I sat down, and he said something very remarkable, which happened to touch upon another actor that I deeply admire, Steve McQueen. And uh, Richard kind of said that in, of all the male actors he had worked with, and there had been many of them, that only two of them knew what to do in front of the camera, that a lot of other actors were in effect... Stage actors who were emoting in front of a camera, but that some actors understand that the camera is the audience, and that they're essentially playing to the camera, and that you need to do stuff you you know you need props, you need bits of business in front of the camera and he said the only two guys who really understood that were Steve McQueen and Sylvester Stallone and a lot of this has to do with eyes. Uh, movie acting is reacting. It's somebody does something, and then we go to the, the telling close-up of the viewpoint character, you know, and, and he does something with his eyes, and we we get the anguish or whatever it is, and, and Stallone uh, brings that degree of intensity to his motions and to his eyes to communicate what he's feeling, and you know, Sly has a scar from when he was born, and he has, as is obvious, it's like speech impediment. So it's naturally in his best interest not to do a lot of talking, not that he does it badly, but I think he does better by being a presence. And so that's what happened in First Blood, that moment where the police officer is trying to fingerprint him and he's not cooperating and they're smudging the paper on which the prints will appear. And another guy comes down, another policeman and looks at him and like, what the hell's going on here? And slams his baton down on the desk and everybody jumps. And the look in Sylvester's eyes, that that sullen, it's a surprised look, but at the same time, you know, how is it possible to surprise a guy like that? And there's just a sudden sullen deepening of his emotions, in which you can tell, oh boy, we just ratcheted this up another notch. And so anyway, I'm I'm very pleased with him. You have to remember, of course, that when the novel begins, Rambo has a long head of hair; he is uh, bearded and looks for all the world what we then, in the late 60s, early 70s, called a hippie. And that was intentional because I remember when I grew my mustache in 1968-69, the tremendous amount of abuse I got from authority figures, that the old gags, you know, are you a man or a woman and all that stuff. And so I had deliberately made Rambo look like a hippie so that the police in the story would feel that they had an edge because how dangerous could a hippie be and by 1982 when the film comes out of course you know that look isn't in fashion and they let sly's hair get a little long and there's this line where he's in the car with brian dennehy and brian dennehy says we don't like guys who look like you being in our town And I remember seeing the movie and watching everybody in the theater lean to each other and say, well, what's wrong with the way he looks? Because, in fact, he looked like every man in the audience. And the world had changed that much from 1972 to 1982. And uh, it was, at the, I thought, the most risky moment in the movie, because if that didn't work, the picture wasn't going to work. But people really wanted to like the movie and made allowance and went with it. That They say, oh, I get it. The cop doesn't like the way he looks. even And in a way, hell, he looks like me, so the cop wouldn't look like me. So... And then we have that emotional identification that allowed the story to go on. But it was a moment that I was nervous about.
1: Now, in the commentary for the DVD, you said that Rambo is a Democrat and Teasel is a Republican. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Of of course, there's Reagan famously (laughs) saying Rambo's a Republican. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's true. And on one of the DVDs, there's a whole thing about Ronald Reagan and how often he referred to Rambo. Uh, The one classic one is President Reagan said that he saw a Rambo movie the night before, and now he knew what to do the next time there was a terrorist hostage crisis, which, of course, struck fear into all the liberals and all the conservatives. (laughs) you know, cheered. And I think what I meant, I have to laugh when you say that. I think what I meant was I I was trying to identify the polarity in the country. And I thought of Rambo having come back, who had been just so disaffected by the war. The secret to his character is that he went to Vietnam and he learned something about himself. He did not want to know that he was good at killing And that that may be the only thing that distinguishes him. And that knowledge about himself destroyed him. So that stateside, he was morally, he just couldn't come to terms with himself and what he had discovered about himself. And after all, you know, if you're in a war, if you're going to win, uh, you you have to be a killer. And so I thought of Rambo as being kind of a disaffected person. And the, the closest I could think of was like, you know the radicals that demonstrated against the war, the Weathermen, and and things like that. It's a very imprecise, and and you're right. I just have to laugh. My words come back to haunt me, <laughs> but it's it's nonetheless I think true in the sense that the 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 battle between them, uh, Teasel representing the Korean War and a more sedate America. And in the novel, as you know, there's a long passage about Teasel's experience in the Korean War and the, and the decorations he received, which isn't in the movie at all, and how he thinks he understands Rambo because they're both soldiers. But of course, the, the Vietnam and Korea are like, you know, polar opposites. So the, the, I'm essentially trying to get at that kind of division.
1: For First Blood Part Two, you returned to write the novelization and I can't recall of any author whose novel was adapted to film and then <laughs> adapted somebody else's story that yes. spun off of that novel back into book form. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that listen, that was a lot of fun and and very different. What happened was the producer in those days novelizations were very important to producers in terms of their ability to get word out about the movie. And so the production company, Carol Co., uh, I had excellent relations with them, Andy, Andrew Vanya and and Mario Kossar, very, really neat guys. I really enjoyed uh, hanging around with them and they asked me if I would do a novelization and I initially told them no because a a novelization is work for hire basically you have to toe the line and you have to you know do the script word for word and just do a little extra description in order to make the novel you know make it sort of 250 pages or something like that and I just wasn't interested and they kept coming back and back and saying look we really want you to do this we think it'll help the movie and they sent me uh, some scenes from the film. In particular, they sent the the sequence in Ra- which Rambo flies the helicopter into the North Vietnamese prison area and blows the hell out of everything. And I remember watching this on, you know, in those days in VHS and, you know, it was grainy and all that, and I'm looking at it, but oh my God, I thought this is really good stuff. This action, this is wonderful. And then I saw the script and the script was truly paper thin. The script had lines like, Rambo jumps up and shoots this guy, Rambo jumps up and shoots that guy. I mean, that was the script. And I thought, oh my God, what the hell am I supposed to do with this if I decide to do it? And so I said, listen, you know, have you guys got anything else? I mean, you know, in the development program, if you have any other scripts, maybe there's some stuff I could use. And they say, well, we do have this script by James Cameron and i came to attention i said you have a script by james cameron for first blood part 2 and he they said yeah but we're not going to use it cuz in it rambo has a sidekick and also rambo is portrayed as being kind of crazy and i said send me the thing so they sent it to me and it was just wonderful but they were you know it begins with rambo in an insane asylum and they were very concerned you know, about how this character would be presented. So what I said to them, because I had some things to say about the character, and what I said to them was, well, I'm going to do it, but you guys have to forget about me being a writer for hire. You have to just say that I'm going to go off and I'm going to write this book and I'm going to incorporate massive amounts of the James Cameron script. And it came out about one-third existing script, one-third James Cameron, and one-third me. And I said, you know, you'll recognize the story. It will not be the movie. Uh, it'll be sort of my version of the movie. Uh, it filtered through Cameron. Uh, and Cameron gets co-credit on the, you know, he, his name is on the cover. So then became big crisis of conscience, because I, I, I don't want to be a spoiler here, but the ending of my novel has a big surprise. <laughs> and... Uh, a, a surprise that actually almost happened at the end of First Blood when it was initially tested on audiences, and then audiences got so angry that they went back and filmed a new ending, which I guess I'm not even much to guessing here, but we'll still make it not a spoiler. And so what I had to do was invent some little paragraph at the beginning of all of this, that would acknowledge that i knew yes i had written this novel that had this major event at the end of first blood which covered all the later movies and that i was essentially saying to the reader look the movies are different from the book so let's get over that and we'll see where the story goes and that was the biggest hurdle and once i sort of got over that it was actually max allen collins who gave me that idea. Max is a wonderful novelist and also the uh, a comic book author. He he did Good Dick Tracy for years, and he is the author of the uh, graphic novel, The Road to Perdition. And uh, he lived in Iowa, where I then lived at the time, and we hung around sometimes. And Anyway, that was his idea, and he and I kind of joke about it periodically. Uh, So that's how the novelization occurred. and, And it is truly a strange animal. In none of the annals of novelizations has there been anything like it. And to make it even more interesting, the book also showed up for six weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. So, you know, it just goes to show there's all kinds of surprises in life.
1: In your novel for part two, I notice a lot of the villains are given more direct actions against Rambo. You have the Cossack killing Ko Co with his uh, dragon gun, yeah. and you have the sergeant being the one who held Rambo. Were these from Cameron's script, or were these your additions?
0: No, those were mine. Um, well, I let me back up. Um, You're talking about the machine gun? Now, tell me how Cole gets killed. It's been a while.
1: In the movie, she's just shot by some random Viet Cong.
0: Yes, that's right. And who shoots him in the in the novel? I,
1: I in the novel, you have the Russian Cossack doing it, which I think is so great because you give Rambo reasons beyond just they're Russian to yeah. go up against each of these people. You make all of the villains so much more entwined. Again, it, it's, it's kind of like you're trying to take, like you said, the paper-thin script and, yeah. and deepen it with some of that nice back-and-forth like you had with Rambo and Teasel by having Sergeant Tay and the... Cossack and all of that actually hurting Rambo specifically in major ways. Yes.
0: Yeah, that, that was mine, now that you explain it to me. The big thing that uh, James Cameron contributed was the opening scene in which uh, Colonel Troutman goes into the institution and goes from one level where there's basket weaving to another level where people are staring at the wall to a third level, which is essentially a dungeon. And there's an armed man at the end of a corridor and there's like a, a huge iron door. And, and the guard says to Troutman, he, he knocked the light out again. And then I'll have to edit this a little. The, (laughs) the guard says he thinks he's the blank and Prince of darkness. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that's so cool. Cameron's really a cool writer. And, And it was a very vivid script. Um, but yeah, my, my goal is I want to make it as personal as I could. And, and there's a scene uh, where Rambo has been tortured and they put him in this slop pit and he's kind of strung on it, looks a little like a crucifix symbol. And I think I get two pages out of what it feels like to be in that slop pit with everything they put in there. And it's enough to make your skin crawl with everything I put in that slop pit.
1: It It really was, yes.
0: <laughs> and then there's a joke at the end where Rambo, all these guys don't, They've been away for so long, they have no idea, you know, who's president even. And so I I made this little joke about, you know, they say, well, who's president? And he says, Ronald Reagan. And and they're aghast. They can't believe it. But they say, well, he's a movie actor. How can a movie actor be president? You know, I mean, it's kind of a joke, but that's probably what, you know, they would have reacted to they had a, you know, 1960s sensibility, you know, having been in prison for so long and, you know, trying to enter into the modern world and that shock of, you know, realizing that the world moved on and that they're now in the future, but they don't know what it is.
1: Yeah, I also got a big chuckle out of Rambo telling them to see Star Wars. <laughs> Now, with the Rambo 2 and 3 novelizations, you added a lot of realism to those books that, you know, the movies were very fantastical, kind of cartoony in many ways. Was the realism something important for you to bring back to the novels?
0: Well, absolutely, and that's, you know, another reason, as I said, why I did it, because there was... I, while the second movie is entertaining, I don't, the third movie is a disaster, I think. The second act and the third act are essentially the same. Rambo tries to rescue Troutman and fails. Rambo tries to rescue uh, Troutman and succeeds. That's essentially the story. The original script had tra- Rambo rescuing Troutman, And then getting involved with a French female doctor of about 50 years of age, no question of a love interest. And she has a group of orphans, of Afghan orphans, and they're trying to get out of the war zone. And so the plot became Rambo Troutman, the French female doctor, and the orphans in this epical, you know, effort to get through the mountains and out of the country, that could have been a hell of a movie. And uh, in each draft I was sent, the doctor got less and less, and all of a sudden she was gone, and then the kids were gone, and even Troutman was pretty much gone from the movie. And so I had to do a lot of heavy lifting to make any sense of the story. And actually, I should leap ahead here a little, Uh, Because just before the fourth movie, which is called Rambo, uh, and which some people erroneously, as I said, think the first movie is called, Sly phoned me about a year before they went into production, and he said to me that he was not happy with the second and third movie in retrospect, that they seemed to glorify the violence in a way that now perhaps wasn't the right thing to have done, whereas First Blood, the movie, did not and had an element of realism to it. And he said that he didn't think they had really gotten my character correct, even in the first movie. And that he'd gone back to the novel and looked at it and was picking up on that element of self-anger that I was talking about earlier. And that is the emotion of the character in the fourth movie. And I just thought it was very interesting that he was going full circle and trying to go back to the novel when he did that fourth movie.
1: Again, given the realism that you bring to the character, how surreal was it when they came out with the kid's cartoon like G.I. Joe with Rambo?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Rambo. Well they used Jerry Goldsmith's music so that was something you know I mean Gold Jerry was such a talented I mean my god I don't think those movies maybe would have worked without you know he he really added something and <laughs> So here we have Rambo sitting on a campfire talking to little animals in the forest. It's so hilarious. Animals in the forest. And then going off to, you know, fight third world dictators. And they didn't have the right to use Sly's likeness. So they have this guy who looks like a wrestler. <laughs> you know, a kind of a generic wrestler. And, I mean, I think there were like 26 of these things. And, and uh, I mean, I can only watch about five of them. But... <laughs> What I saw was vastly entertaining, just from a camp point of view, you know, that him and the little bitty animals, (laughs) 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 oh, please, I'm going to crack up (laughs) now.
1: For readers who discover your work through First Blood and want to read more like it, which of your other novels would you recommend they go to first?
0: I, I have been an author now for 38 years, and that is an eternity in the publishing world. The average career for a successful novelist is 15 years or maybe 20. And the reason for that is most authors seize upon something and beat it to death. They do it again and again and again and again because they're on some gravy train. And then finally they, their audience gets tired. And I determined that people like Jimmy Stewart would be my model Stewart started as a song and dance man, then he became a screwball comedian, he went to war, he was a, a, a combat uh, pilot, he then came back and did those wonderful Anthony Mann westerns, then he did the Hitchcock movies, and he did other things, and this, you know, he, uh, I can't, I shouldn't forget the Capra movies that he did in the 30s, and, you know, this is a guy who evolved, who had a full career and moved on, and I think that's how you last how you have a career. So with that in mind, I could have written all kinds of further novels not specifically about Rambo but about, you know, soldiers or what have you, you know, in some kind of big confrontation and lots of battle scenes and but I didn't want to do that and I tried a number of other things, all of them had action, all my books have action and suspense, but all of them take a step forward and so if somebody wanted to pick up from Rambo and try, from First Blood, see, I'm doing it too, <laughs> uh, is um, uh, Try the Brotherhood of the Rose. This novel became a mini series on NBC, the only miniseries to be broadcast after the Super Bowl. And uh, it's a spy novel, and it has, again, that realism. You talked about that authenticity. I was trained by people who'd been in the CIA, and that novel, I'd say, 60% of it is true. And it is a novel that made a huge difference because I did something for the, that had never been done. I took the true tradecraft and feeling of a John Le Carre novel, where they're all sitting around tables, sort of plotting, and combined it with a Robert Ludlum novel in which he, Robert Ludlum, all these guys in trench coats running around down alleys and what have you, his tradecraft was terrible. He wrote an exciting story, but it was guff. And for the first time, we had a thriller espionage novel, which had plenty of action, but also had authentic uh, espionage tradecraft in it. And it was on the basis of that novel that the Association for Intelligence Officers accepted me as a lifetime honorary member. Um, because they liked the way I wrote about spies. And so The Brotherhood of the Rose is a big deal, and many thriller writers working today wouldn't be working if it weren't for The Brotherhood of the Rose, which sort of showed the way uh, back in 1984. And uh, that's part of a trilogy, uh, They co- sometimes called The Brotherhood uh, Trilogy, The Brotherhood of the Rose, The Fraternity of the Stone, and The League of Night and Fog. And uh, it's, it's considered a place. It's in the 80s. And, and an, another book that I'm, I'm well-known for, as I mentioned, is The Protector. And the sequel, as I, as I said, the, uh, the Naked Edge, just now out in that exclusive ebook uh, arrangement that I have with Amazon Kindle.
1: Okay. And did I understand from Wikipedia, I was, when I was before this interview, is The Brotherhood of the Rose in process to be a, a theatrical movie now?
0: Well, we sure hope. It's been an option so many times. Two years ago, I thought there was a good chance with Channing Tatum Uh, They were going to skew it very young, for early 20s, and Channing Tatum was going to play. The story is about two orphans raised in an orphanage. One's Jewish, one's Irish Catholic, and they are befriended by an elderly man in the CIA who, in effect, becomes their father, and he trains them to be his personal operatives. But what they don't know is he doesn't really love them. He isn't really their father. You know, he doesn't feel like their father, he's simply using them. And the story has to do with when one brother is killed because of something the father does, the foster father, and how the other brother reacts. It's a very, very emotional, it's a chase around the world with the son trying to get even with his foster father for a lifetime of abuse that he didn't know he was undergoing. And I thought Channing Tatum would have been all right. And he was in a movie called Fighting, uh, and the director of fighting, and Lord helped me, he's a good director. I just, from the moment, can't think of the director's name. And he and Channing know each other pretty well, and they were going to do Brotherhood of the Rose. And fighting didn't do any business. And so, as happens in Hollywood, suddenly this wasn't a hot property anymore, and so it never moved forward. But we have now optioned the property again And there's another attempt to get it made as a feature. And, you know, if we can just get them so they know they don't need endless car chases (laughs) and that it's all right for a story to have emotion, then I think the movie will be very satisfactory.
1: And I actually plan on following up by reading your horror novel, Creepers. Oh, please. We're recording this right around Halloween. I'm in the mood for a good horror story. Yes. And so listeners will be able to hear that review on Books and Nachos.
0: Well, just one thing to notice about it, Creepers takes place in eight hours in an abandoned hotel in Asbury Park, New Jersey, which is sort of like Bosnia in the United States. And it's about urban exploration, which is people who love to go into old buildings that have been sealed for a very long time and experience the past and explore, you know, what it would be like to be in this hotel that was closed in 1970, but looks like it's in 1901, And where I'm going with this is the eight hours are described in real time. It's the only novel that I know of that treats real time sort of like uh, 24 did, except 24 cheated a little, but, you know, they had to have commercials. But what I did is I set the book starting at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, midnight. And every one of those hours every second of those hours is accounted for. If they have to go to the bathroom, we're there. If they breathe, they're there. Every creak on the staircase, we're there. And it is so authentic in terms of its adherence to the timeline that when the brilliance unabridged audio of Creepers came out, it took eight hours to read out loud. So the book takes as long to read as it would for the story to occur if it were happening in real life.
1: That's great. I just love reading where new kind of literary devices are used like that. Like I mentioned earlier that you did with First Blood, with the balance between the characters, and that even excites me more for Creepers. So,
0: Well, uh, I was... This might spoil it. I was a professor of American literature. Now everybody will say, oh, darn. (laughs) (laughs) But I, you know, I was classically trained, so to speak, and I think thrillers are the grandest thing in the world in terms of storytelling, but I don't underestimate them. Thrillers also have a wonderful opportunity to invent and to actually teach. And so when I start a book, I literally write a letter to myself in which I answer the question, why would I want to spend a year of my life writing this book? And because I'm not in it for the money. And I do it because there has to be something about the theme and something about the way the novel will be written and something about the research that is going to make me evolve. It's going to make me a fuller person when I'm done. Another kind of Halloween book that I did called The Shimmer uh, which is about the famous Marfa lights in Texas, very eerie phenomenon, which I saw a couple months ago. And uh, in the search for the Marfa lights, in real life, they've used a lot of small planes. And so I knew I was going to need small planes in the story. And so I, you know, I don't fudge, I don't cheat. So I went down to my local airport and had somebody take me out. And I took some lessons, and then I took some more lessons, and I took some more lessons. And I kid you not, by the time the novel came out, I was a licensed pilot wow so i really take this seriously and anybody out there who's in armed forces who's in law enforcement i guarantee that when you read my stuff you will not be embarrassed you're not going to say this guy doesn't know anything about guns because i i do the research is very thorough
1: and that comes through i i felt at times when reading i especially the movie novelizations like it was intro to guns and ammo (laughs) because you were explaining so much
0: I even got in touch with Jimmy Lyle, who did the Knives for the first and second movie and and i you know we did some interviews so I could talk about the knife in the book in the in the novelization um i mean you know not research is so wonderful and it just makes you you know it makes your life i keep using this word fuller you know if there's a message in my work. And a message in my life, it's that people, too many people are walking around as robots. And, and I think you can hear even the enthusiasm in my voice. And what we have a moral obligation to get up every morning and say, all right, today's the start of another adventure. How am I going to make this a better day than yesterday? And if we do that, then we justify our place on the planet.
1: Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to be interviewed on our show and also for these books, which have given me hours of entertainment. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And once again, we want to say thank you to David morell for taking the time to talk to us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation and do come back next week as Jerry is going to be joining us to review a Sylvester Stallone book and then I'll be back in December reviewing David morell's Creepers. And remember, you can check out our sister podcast, Now Playing, at nowplayingpodcast.com to hear me, Brock, and Jacob review all four of the Rambo films. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you later. you for listening to books and nachos if you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review on itunes and
0: you can catch back episodes at our website books and nachos.com the music for books and nachos is the right prescription by chai weapon which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com books and nachos is copyright
1: 2010 Vinganza media incorporated